The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to another show of Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, and with my co-host, Kylie Kipper, Sam is out ill today. We're first going to start with Anna Giratelli. She's a Homeland Security reporter for the Washington Examiner. She's been on the show before. She has a very specific knowledge. She's been to the border more than 40 times since 2018, and she's also covered human smuggling and the evolution of the war on drugs, domestic terrorism, and migration trends. And she is based in Texas. Um, Anna, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So we have a day of rage, apparently. Hamas has declared it. Tell us a little bit about it, and what is the United States government doing to prepare to keep our citizens safe here and abroad? Yeah, so yesterday uh, the former leader of Hamas uh, came out and said that um, you know people who sympathize with Hamas around the Muslim world and outside uh, that, that, that just that region should uh, take part and come out in public and protest and um, engage in a day of jihad and rage. And so the Israeli uh, government, you know, put out notices yesterday saying, you know, people should take cover, should remain vigilant, should be, you know, braced for the worst. And so the United States has also followed suit. Um, Typically something happening, you know, in one region of the country wouldn't affect us. But uh, the Department of Homeland Security said it's been in touch with 40 different faith leaders, uh, 65,000 people uh, in faith organizations, making sure that, you know, synagogues in particular, even mosques, are going to be safe today. Um, I know here in Austin, Texas, police are, are have been called in uh, in full gear, so they're ready for anything they have to deal with. New York City, LAPD, Miami police, uh, they're all, all being called in today to report to duty just to to make sure that their presence is there in case something does happen in any of these cities. Anna, have you talked to any um, Jewish folks or synagogues or educators at Jewish schools about today? Have you had a chance to talk to any of them and how they're feeling? You know, I haven't, but the the Secretary of Homeland Security, had his uh, spokesperson was saying on this White House call last night that he's been in contact with a number of different groups and what really one of their top three priorities right now is being in constant contact uh, with these faith-based organizations. So it's not like uh, these groups are on their own. You're, you know, if you're a synagogue, you're on your own, hope for the best. Um, the, the federal government has billions of dollars in grants so that these facilities can, they, what we say is harden uh, security. So make sure you have more security present as well as police. Uh, make sure you have private security, um, just, you know, especially at this point in time. Uh, so I think the, the department really is rolling out a lot. We've seen this for several years now where DHS has, um, even yesterday, said that faith-based organizations are considered critical infrastructure. So that gives even more uh, ability for the federal government to really surge resources and, and even push funding to to these entities. Well, and that's fascinating, and the Biden administration is to be applauded for that. There's not much I would applaud them for, especially regarding immigration and so forth, but I applaud them for doing that because they are a critical infrastructure. Explain mm-hmm. to our audience what a gotaway is and how this <laughs> relates to what is going on at the border, and because of the gotaways, how this may pose a threat to some of these faith-based communities and to our, our, our larger cities. Yeah. Um, so at the southern border, you've got a 2,000-mile border, some with fence, some without. Um, what we've seen over the past two and a half years is a, a real – it went up in March 2021 when Biden first took office and hasn't declined. Uh, normally, we would see thirty to 50,000 people cross the border in a month and get arrested. What we've seen um, in each of the months – since Biden took office, is anywhere between 150,000 
and 300,000 people in a month, which is just, you know, we can't detain people through court proceedings. There's things that bar families from being held more than 20 days. So it's the perfect storm of yeah. just mass releases. And let, me, and, so, let me, and let me ask you this. How big's Austin, for example? Austin, I believe, is 1.1 million. So over a course of a week, we get a new Austin. Over a course of four or five months, we get a new Austin in the United States. We do. And that's, and that's who's crossing, right? That doesn't mean they're getting released. Since, since Biden took office, the best estimates we have are more than 2 million people have been released into the United States. And so we've seen uh, the, the number one spot that people are going is New York City based on um, where people tell uh, Border Patrol agents and ICE, you know, when they're getting released, hey, I'm going to go to my sister who lives in Queens. And then the, what the immigration officials do is place them in removal proceedings. So, hey, you need to go to court and see if we're going to remove you down the road. And we're the closest court to Queens is the New York Immigration Court. So we'll put you in that system. And so based on all the court data, we're seeing that more people are being placed in the New York court system than any other in the country. And is the Biden administration and Congress providing more resources so you can have more judges so they can do quicker rulings on these and not have these lengthy time periods so they bring it back in? You know, each administration the last few years has added judges, and we only have under 700 nationwide, (laughs) and we have more than 2 million cases pending. So the thought is that even if you hired enough judges, you can't, you can't go through, you know, the backlog fast enough. You really need to do something up front that that causes fewer people to either come through or, or you're immediately dealing with cases now so that more aren't being added to the system. But but this is something we've seen under, you know, President Obama, President Trump, and now President Biden. Uh, each administration is guilty of you know, well, not guilty of, but they have hired more judges, but but they're guilty of that number of the backlog just keeps going up. Well, I'm sure the and, judges also work banker hours. I mean, it'd be interesting if you say we're going to quadruple the amount of judges we have. We're going 24-7. Yeah. And, you know, back to what you said about the gotaways. Gotaways are people who, you know, thanks to great technology and agents who are in the field, Border Patrol agents, you know, what will happen, happen is downtown and in populated areas at the border, you'll have a group of, say, 400 people come across at once. And that pulls all the agents in the nearby vicinity over here to take everybody into custody, to pat people down, make sure no one's carrying, you know, something they shouldn't be. Uh, and then to organize people by, by country and by, okay, families here, adult men here, single women here and then bust them to the appropriate facilities where they'll be processed, that means that other areas of the border, maybe 10, 20 miles away, you've just pulled the agents that were there from their spot. And so what the cartels will do is run drugs across. They'll run the meth across. They'll run, you know, different stuff across the border because no one's there. And they'll also run the criminals. So say someone who's been deported previously knows they shouldn't be reentering the country. Or someone who maybe is on the terror watch list, or someone who is, is a kind of a worldwide known um, criminal. So we, we can't look at databases for each country and see crimes, but if you know they're well known or they're a gang affiliation, they don't want to get caught like all the families coming across. So you'll see them on camera, or agents will see them, but but they're too busy to make an apprehension. So it's like okay, there's a group of 20 bodies we see in this infrared camera and they're walking in and we have no one to get them. So, you know, add 20 to the list. And at this point, we're over 1.6 million people who are, we dubbed gotaways, who we've seen enter illegally and then they got away. And that doesn't include the number who have entered illegally not been observed and also got away how big you know that look this is purely a guesstimate on your part so i'm not asking you to go to vegas and put a wager on it but <laughs> okay so we have the ones they've seen the gotaways right and they've done an estimate on it um and let's say they're off 10 15 one way or another minus or more how many do you think have come into the country that they never observed 
you know, I could not put a guess on that. Um, what is what, there's, so, there's so all sorts of numbers out there. So give me the give me the give, you've heard a bunch of numbers. You talked to a lot of people, Homeland Security, Border. What's the low number and what's the high number you heard? And then Kyla and I will make some really <laughs> gut wrenching c- comment here on it. But what is the lowest number and what's the highest number? You know, I, I really just don't. I focus on the numbers we know for sure. Okay. Um, just because I, as a reporter, I want to make sure I'm putting out the most factual information. Do we? Um, sorry. Mm-hmm. Do we know how much? Uh, how many miles there aren't cameras that we so that we aren't seeing them? Do we know how many miles there are that aren't being monitored, or are they like drones that are going back and forth? You know, that's a good question. It's a it's a mixture of both. Uh, drones have in the last few years become a real big part of how Border Patrol is monitoring mm-hmm. the border. Um, the latest numbers we have are that the Mexican cartels actually have 17 drones for every one drone that the U.S. has. Wow. So oh they're goodness. using that to surveil ports of entry. They're using that to see where agents are on the border and, oh, there's no one here, you know, run something across. And Jeez. they're also, um, some of them are, are capable of carrying, you know, just a couple pounds of something. So obviously, you carry, say you would carry a pound of marijuana over the border in a drone. That's not worth a lot of money, but if you can carry, you know, fentanyl, uh, a pound or two, like that's, that's going to be worth a lot more money. So drones are really a, a, um, a way that cartels are, are, are surveilling U.S. federal mm-hmm. law enforcement and, and, and making moves here and there. And they're also, you can't shoot it down with a gun because half the time you can't even hear them or see them at night. Uh, and so there's also no prosecutions. I think one has been prosecuted, one incident in the last five years, um, because you don't know where, where it's going to or from. <laughs> it's just, it's just not getting, <laughs> it's just, I, I don't even know what to say. It's just not getting better here. Um, we're coming up to a minute left here and we, to our next segment, we want to talk to you. But one thing I want to talk to you about, how is the dysfunction of the Republican Congress right now? affecting um, things like homeland security and border, if it is or if it isn't at all. Um, we know you have to have an operational government to get resources, so we want to do that. Um, one other quick question before we go to a break. Because of the legalization of marijuana in the United States, has that decreased the amount coming across the border? Yeah, we, d- we do believe that. Um, we used to see a couple million pounds uh, coming across the border in a couple, within a couple of years. Easily over a million in a year of just marijuana, and that number has diminished significantly. And so, overall, you would say Border Patrol is seizing far, far less drugs than it used to. But really, you know, if you seize a pound of, of fentanyl one year, and then you seize a thousand pounds the next year, but you're used to seizing a million pounds of right. marijuana, you know, yeah. it's hard to sort of quantify. So we really try to look at it as a drug by drug. Right. But no. you're right. Uh, marijuana is it's available here. So, um, so, yeah, it's still coming over, but it's not as profitable. We make our own. We don't need to import that. This is Chuck Warner at Breaking Battlegrounds. We're with Anna Giratelli. She is a Homeland Security reporter for the Washington Examiner. You can find her on X, which is formerly Twitter, at Anna underscore G-I-A-R-I-T-E-L-L-I. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be right back. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren of Kylie Kipper. Today we have with us friend of the show, Anna Giratelli, Homeland Security reporter for the Washington Examiner. Really ask you to follow her work. She does fantastic work telling us what's going on on our border, Homeland Security, and you'll be more knowledgeable for following her. Folks, first of all, I want to make sure and give a plug to our sponsor. If you're looking to increase your savings and your return, I suggest you go talk to Y-Refi. You can call them at 888 Y-R-E-F-Y-24, that's 
Y-R-E-F-Y 24. You can go there. There's no fees for your investments, and you can get a 10.25% fixed rate of return while also helping college students with their college loans. So take a look and call Y-Refi, and I'm telling Chuck and Sam sent you. All right, Anna, so let's talk about something people don't talk about. Canada has a big border up north, and... I, you know, assumption is the mother of all screw-ups, but I would assume that people are starting going to Canada and crossing through our border there. Is that true, or am I just making something up? No, you're right on there. We see about 1% of the number of southern border crossings on the northern border. So, you know, it, it sounds like it's nothing really, uh, but, you know, 1% of $2 million in a year, we do see a a good amount of people who are coming across, typically in the Vermont, Maine, and upstate New York areas. Um, and we also see a lot of uh, smuggling going from the United States into Canada. Uh, those are typically things, guns, the so firearms, uh, sometimes cigarettes, uh, those sorts of things. And those are, those are the old school uh, bootleggers from 100, 100 so years ago. Who, uh, whose families are still involved in, in moving stuff. Um, but, yeah, we, we do see immigrants coming across, typically from Europe. Sometimes uh, Mexico and Central America, people will fly into Canada and then try to come down. Uh, but it is certainly, there's no border wall across the 4,000-mile northern border. Uh, it's double the length of the southern border. So, um, yeah, it, it's very wide open, but again, we still have Border Patrol up there monitoring things, and uh, and these are typically senior agents. They've they've paid their time on the southern border, right? Um, and now they're up north. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is your nice retirement, your gold watch opportunity to serve at the end, and now <laughs> you've got this going here. Do they have like coyotes up on the Canadian border, like we do in the southern border? I mean, how are they getting across? I mean, there's obviously has to be operations that help them do this. There, there are, yes. And, and some of the groups that smuggle stuff north are also working with people uh, who are coming south. Uh, some of those more uh, Irish-Italian sort of old-school mafia groups are helping people. We do still have some coyotes, but, but typically what we see are people from Eastern Europe who have flown into Canada because they didn't need a visa. Mm. And then that's, that's how they're coming down and... Um, this winter, we saw a number of deaths of people who were trying to cross the border at night in, you know, freezing conditions and got lost. And, uh, you know, those are really, really tragic things. But, but you know, uh, people are going to, there's a coast, there's the, the northern and southern borders, and um, even Florida. Florida has seen extraordinary amount of people uh, taking boats from Cuba and Haiti trying to reach uh, the Florida Keys and get on land or trying to reach. We've even had West Palm Beach boats landing not far from uh, Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. Maybe they were just so, real. Maybe they were just real estate appraisers. We don't know this, but yeah. maybe so. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let me let me ask you this question. So, since the start of the fiscal year twenty twenty three, which is October October through August, the Border Patrol caught one hundred and fifty one people who were processed and determined to be on the FBI's terror watch list. That's who they caught. Is this something people should be concerned about, or is this just the imagination of conservative media that these are bad people? You know, and you explained it perfectly, because these are people on the watch list. It doesn't mean that they are actual terrorists. I mean, they have a cousin Uh, or something, right? Or a friend. Exactly, yeah. But there's a link. There's a handshake in there somewhere. Yes, exactly. It's not like you get on the list for no reason. Mm. Um, Yeah, what we believe a lot of it to be is people, Colombian nationals, who were affiliated with uh, FARC. So during the, the fight in Colombia a number of years ago, People who were involved in that are still sort of flagged in the system. Um, but inevitably, like in the last 10 days, we've seen people from 28 um, special interest countries. So that includes Egypt, Iran, uh, the whole of the Middle East, the Eastern Europe, uh, Indonesia, certain countries, Uzbekistan, uh, apprehended at the border, which is not abnormal, but, you know, to see so many um, just just with what's happened in Israel and Palestine has given Republicans a lot of a lot of concern with you know we we know who we're encountering and we can screen them through the databases 
but who we, you know, who gets away and hasn't been screened, we don't know. Um, and so, well, in twenty, so in twenty one, we had fifteen people, right? So there's one hundred fifty one now. Yeah. So, and before that, it was like three. Yeah. So the here. number, so the number is increasing. Let's just say they're not all bad people. I mean, I know Kylie, but I'm still a good guy, so we have that situation. <laughs> but if you have one hundred fifty one people versus fifteen and twenty one, three before that. One or two probably we don't want to have over for dinner. Is that fair to say? Maybe just based on numbers. Well, I mean, and, I, and Tom Cotton, I think you reported on it, Anna. He said it took 19 terrorists to commit 9-11. Right. So we mm-hmm. have potentially, you know. Yeah. So, so Anna, you, look, you've, been, you've done this for a while. We've got about three minutes less in the segment. What needs to be done in your expert opinion? And you are an expert, but you're a reporter. So I just want an objective and you can say Republican stink at this. Democrat. I don't care. What do they need to do to get this border situation under control? You know, I think one of the interesting points is that under Obama, uh, when he imposed the DACA program, Republicans said you overstepped your executive authority and you shouldn't have done that. Right. And so now what we're seeing with the Biden administration is they're using that to Republicans' disadvantage. They're saying... Well, the border, yeah, stuff is happening, but we can't do anything because we don't have the authority. It's only Congress that can do something. And so they're using Republicans' argument against them as a means to do nothing. So, you know, in a way, it's like you respect that, but it's nothing's happening. And it's we're heading into almost, you know, the fourth year now of, of the border just, I mean, I would say remain unchecked. They've tried so many different programs that haven't worked. I don't think you necessarily need to return to Trump-era policies to bring things down. But as long as people are seeing family members and friends, you know, hey, call call them back home and say, I, I got released and I'm in New York now. Right. Um, what the Biden administration says, they can say the border is closed, but you have 2 million people who have been released and called home and said, yeah, you should come. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think yeah. Until there's that stuff happening, um, you know, whatever policy doesn't matter. You can have a policy, but are you going to enforce it? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, it's like a lot of parents. We threaten our kids, but at the end of the day, if we don't have the punishment aligned to it, they're going to just keep ignoring us. So it's um, mm-hmm. it's hard to watch. And uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. You, you've been fantastic as usual. Could you tell our audience a little bit where they can catch you at and follow your work? Yeah, um, on X, if you search Anna uh, underscore Giratelli, just look up G-I-A. Um, if you also want to go to Elon Musk's page and search his followers, I I don't know why, but Elon Musk follows my work. <laughs> That's well, amazing. So, because you give good yeah. numbers. Anna, we yeah. hope you have a great weekend. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you. This is Breaking Battlegrounds, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host with my co-host, Kylie Kipper. Sam is out with the sniffles today. Kylie, we feel bad for Sam, don't we? We do. All right. Well, we're here with a friend of the show, John Riches. John is the vice president for litigation for the Goldwater Institute. Um, He litigates on federal and state trial and appellate courts in the areas of economic liberty, regulatory reform, free speech, all those things good conservatives, libertarians care about, things that the left says they used to care about, but they apparently don't care much anymore. Um, he is a Boston Law School grad. He previously worked for John Kyle, and he is a commander at the Navy Reserve. Thank you for your service, John. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Chuck. All right. So let's talk about DEI. Um, <laughs> it's been an interesting conversation here on the show when the whole Barrett mess happened, and we had a professor on who didn't work at Barrett, but he was defending him because he just likes to talk all the time. And he said, oh, they don't require DEI. And what you found, what Goldwater found, is that they were making, was it staff or just professors take a loyalty oath? Uh, so that was new job applicants. And then we started to learn that they were requiring... And how that. long ago was that for the new... Did they implement this policy for new job applicants? Uh, it seems like a couple years back. Okay. What we found is that they'd put, post like a new job application. And there'd be your traditional things, your resume, cover letter. But then they would require... And tell us in two pages or less uh, your professional accomplishments wherein you advanced DEI measures, et cetera, et cetera. Really? 
And, and we found that they did that in like more than 80 percent of all new job postings. So, you know, conservatives like to yell and scream about Michael Crow. I think he's been a decent university professor in some ways. Is this something he would be unaware of because it's a department mandate that has just happened? Yeah, it's entirely possible. And, and to ASU's credit, uh, and maybe to Michael Crow's credit, once we pointed it out and presented the evidence and provided the report, they stopped doing it. What was Crow's <laughs> response when you brought it to him? Well, we didn't have a specific one okay. from Crow, but when we brought it to the university and published the report, the university stopped doing it. Well, and, that's, and that's a decision probably he was well aware of yeah. at the time. And um, so how when, they, when you brought this up with them about these loyalty oaths, what was their first reaction to you? Like, no, this doesn't happen? I mean, what? They, there was a denial at so, first. So they lied. There was a denial at first from the school <laughs> and from professors and others. Like, you know, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. So, so John's talking legally saying there's a denial. We're going to tell you on the radio show, folks, they lied because they knew they were doing it. Okay, so John Sain's denial, hashtag Chuck lied. Okay, <laughs> um, how long did it take to get the information from them that this is actually happening? And did you have to follow, you know, take the bat to this issue and say, you know, we're suing or what happened? So we requested the information through public records requests, talking with um, new hires, things like that. Um, you know, put, put, put the report together in a few months. And once we published it, they were pretty quick to act, to their credit, uh, and they eliminated it. But that got us thinking, you know, is this happening in other areas? Does this go beyond the loyalty oaths? And so uh, a few months after that, uh, we had a couple of professors reach out to us and say, hey, we saw what you did with the DEI loyalty oaths. Do you know that ASU is requiring all faculty and staff to take a mandatory training that covers all these DEI initiatives? Not only that, after you complete the training, the university gives you a quote-unquote test where they supply the right answers. So it'll say something like, you know, you, you refer to a student, and it's not the student's preferred pronoun. Um, what do you do? A, apologize. B, whatever. And the university then supplies the right answer. And if you get it wrong, then you're reported to your dean. So when we heard about that, we go, well, that seems like a compelled speech problem. So we requested more information about that. How long was this DEI training they had to take, this mandatory training? Unfortunately, I sat through it once we got the public records. <laughs> well, I should... I because, you're an asso- because you're an associate professor at the law school. That's right. So, yeah, you, had, so you had to participate in it. Well, I, did, I never actually... I, I think I got an email once or twice, but I didn't quite pay attention to those ones. But once we realized that it was happening, I requested the, the records to get, to the, get the training. So how long itself. did it take? It was several hours. Just mind-numbing, word-salad, progressive, DEI, don't offend anybody, woke crap. Kendriak, Zebram, you know, intersectionality, you know. The fraud? um, The fraudster? They're promoting the fraudster? The guy who's basically built millions of dollars? I think he had his own little video segment in the training. (sighs) What a grift. Yeah. Yeah, truly. You know, things like uh, white supremacy is built into the foundational documents of our country, you know, that sort of stuff. And it just went, went on and on. It's just unbelievable. What happened if you didn't take it? Uh, well, we don't know for sure. We asked about that. We asked the university about that, and they said no one's been disciplined for failing to take it yet, or at least they didn't have records of anybody being disciplined for failing. Can to you take fail it. this said test? <laughs> yeah. Kyle, Kyle so if it. I fail it, I am I just not a professor? Or well, I mean that was the problem. They nope. said if you failed it, they would report you. They would report true, the true. professor to the dean. Um, but then we asked, has anybody been disciplined reported? And they said, we don't have any records of that. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. Today we're with John Riches. He is the Vice President of Litigation at the Goldwater Institute um, Center for Constitutional Litigation. He's General Counsel for the Institute. And um, this is Breaking Battlegrounds. You can find us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. We'll be right back with John to talk more about DEI and the craziness at the University, not the University of Arizona, Arizona State. We want to talk about University of Arizona as well. Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be right back. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true.
Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Orth, my co-host, Kylie Kipper, also known for Kylie's Corner, which will be on later today on the podcast. We're John Rich is Vice President of Litigation for the Goldwater Institute. John, let's go talk further about the DEI situation at um, Arizona State. First of all, is University of Arizona, Northern Arizona, are they also having these same type of issues? We think. We've, we've gone to their website and requested some records, and it looks like they're doing these sorts of trainings as well. Uh, we sent a letter to ABOR where we asked them to audit all the universities across the state because it appears that this is a broader problem than just ASU. How much money has ASU dedicated to DEI officers? Do you know? That's a good question. I don't. That'd be interesting for us to find out, Kylie. I, I think a our lot. audience would like to know. All right, so let's talk about the border regents and DEI staffing. Did the border regents were they aware of this? Did they? What did they do on it? I don't know. We sent them a letter just last month. So this is interesting. The Arizona legislature last session passed a statute that prohibits DEI esque trainings for state employees and prohibits the spending of taxpayer dollars to provide these trainings. And there's you know very quaint concepts like. You know, no race is uh, inherently superior to another. People aren't inherently racist based on their race. Uh, you can't discriminate based on someone's race. All of these things were in the statute. All, all common sense things. Most people would find common sense if, all, we, went, if we just went door to door. Exactly. Common sense, moral things. Right. Um, and it said, you know, no state agency, including the universities, can require their employees to take training that advances things contrary to the, you know, to, to these common sense items. And you can't spend taxpayer money on it. So when we got the records on this DEI training for faculty and staff, it was pretty clear that that training violated, um, violated the statute. statute. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So that's what we sent the letter to ABOR on. And we said, look, here's the training. We pulled out specific segments of the training um, and said, you know, we are in violation of state law. What you should do now is stop mandating the training and stop spending taxpayer dollars uh, to provide it. You have much money, just even the mandatory training cost, what they spend on that? It had to have been a lot. I mean, it was a it was a very comprehensive training with videos with, you know, people throughout the country. Because these people sure have no problem increasing tuition every year. Yeah. Yep. That's true. Let's talk about the Cronkite's Journalism School at ASU. Um, It's a mandatory class there, is it not? Or was? That's right. Yeah. So what we found... They're requiring this DEI loyalty oath for new hires. They're requiring the training for existing faculty. And then we're wondering, you know, is it going into the student body? And it turns out that the Cronkite School has a required DEI course for every single uh, journalism uh, student at the school. So we requested those records. We asked for the syllabus. At first, they didn't want to give us copies of it, but eventually they did. What was, and, what was, on, the, what was on the syllabus? You know, a lot of the same sort of uh, DEI dogma stuff that you see, you know, throughout throughout these sort of courses, a lot of the intersectionality stuff and that sort of thing. We wonder why, Kylie, our press is slanted. I don't wonder anymore. <laughs> it all makes sense. And I don't think ASU is, you know, coming up with this, these ideas themselves. So It'd be interesting to see... Um, surveying the students when they start the Cronkite School of Journalism, if they think it's needed, and after four years if they think it's needed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, think about how little time you have to actually do the few mandatory courses are required that are required. And this is, this is the thing that the school is focusing on, you know, in that limited uh, chunk of time. Do you th- is this happening in our public schools on the high school level? Is it happening on the junior college level? Um, uh, I'm not sure about junior college, but K-12 for sure. I mean, this has been a debate for, for year, I mean, a couple of years now where, you know, K-12 are clearly introducing DEI, CEO, CRT concepts into the classroom. They deny doing it. You, then you come up with real clear evidence that they have. Um, so, yeah, this, this goes obviously broader than higher ed. John, explain to our audience why this fight's necessary. We all, you know, we want we really do want a colorblind society. Right. I mean, I think it's all we want. It, you know, that may be a goal, you know, sort of like the more perfect union. You know, we, we're going to get a little bit better each time, each generation. Our kids will be better, hopefully. But why is this important for us just to put our thumb on it and say this this nonsense has to stop? Why is it important for our country, for the state of Arizona? It's, it's contrary to the founding ideals of the country, right? If you take a concept like equity, what does that mean? It, it's the opposite of equality of opportunity. It's they're trying to get... A quality of outcome, which of course you can't do, uh, and that's essentially a Marxist theory. But 
Um, you know, our country's predicated on the belief that all people are created equal and everybody should have an equal opportunity. Uh, not that some people are given uh, special privileges, not that some people should be discriminated against based on race. Um, you know, the content of our character is determined uh, by our choices and our actions, uh, not by immutable characteristics. Kylie, do you feel like folks in their 20s and early 30s believe in that concept at all? Yes. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. I was... I mean, you have some friends who are Democrat, liberal, I yeah. imagine. I mean, you've not cut them off, I'm sure. No, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> though, though, I, I, though I have recommended it. But anyway, continue. What do you find their beliefs are on this, this type of thing? I find that my friends who, they think Republicans are racist. Yeah. Like that. But when I was... In high school and college, I was really not political, and none of my friends were. Like, we did not discuss this, and right. how I got into because it you're, was, Because you were normal human beings. Yeah, and we just... And, and we all... That's why we became best friends. And then, obviously, 2020, when the whole Trump, everything, that, that's when it all started coming out. And I'm like, you have known me for this long. Have you, <laughs> and have now you ever you, seen me say a racist yes, thing in the world? exactly. And, I, and so I'm like, you guys need to look, reflect back and, like, look at this and really look at the people... They really don't. Character. They really don't look at the content of the character. No, it's been it's been very odd to see. John, as at Goldwater, and you do litigation there. Okay, you've been doing this how long now at Goldwater? Ten years. How have things changed? What the left and governments are trying to do ten years ago versus now? How, what is it? Have you seen a change? Has it gotten worse? What's what's going on? Sure. So we got to decide, of course, what cases we're going to take. Are we going to do an right. economic freedom case? Are we going to do a free speech case? Are we going to do a regulatory case? And for you know the first five years, six six maybe even seven years, I was there. Things that everybody basically agreed on: free speech is a good thing. People shouldn't be discriminated against based on their race. It was you know? a, it was a liberal ideology in the seventies and eighties, right? And it, Republicans are always trying to suppress it, of course, supposedly. It's essentially a liberal right. notion, right? Right, right. right. Um, but these things that everybody that we thought everybody agreed on, um, you know, it appears they don't. And now things like free speech, uh, you know, equality of opportunity are controversial uh, concepts, uh, and that's been that's been some something of a surprise. Have you noticed attorneys you work with who are on the left or you know, have they changed on this? Do they feel things are going too far in one extreme? What, I think what are they saying? I think there's a divide um, in the, uh, you know, on the left between well, classical liberals. And this, this Israel massacre, what's happening, I, I, it's been interesting to watch. And I know this isn't your forte, but we talk about this a lot on the show. I've noticed a lot of liberal journalists, traditional liberals, I'll call them. They're appalled. Like, I can't believe how much anti-Semitism is on the left. Well, it's like, well, you never talk to anybody because it's been there forever. Right. Right? I mean, talk about people with their heads in the cloud. Do you find that type of eye-opening moment has come to some of these folks, on the attorneys on the left you've known and you respect, just like, oh, my gosh, what is going on here? Yeah. And I've had, I've had conversations with some that say, hey, look, I mean, I've been – so disenchanted with what's happening with the progressives and this this anti, you know this animosity towards free speech that it's made me want to leave for example the democratic party but i feel like it's necessary for me to stick around so that there's an adult in the room and so that there's a a sane voice but i think their that voice is becoming quieter and the progressives are becoming louder yeah i don't know where they go i know we've had that on the right we have our never tremors of trump of course our side um, and all their self-righteousness stomped their feet held their breath and just felt like i'm just gonna leave and take my ball and go home and it's been an absolute catastrophe that they've done that because there's not this intellectual rigor of debate in the party right now what else is goldwater working on right now um that you feel our audience should know about um, all kinds of things. You know, we, we do a whole lot of things where we try and protect taxpayers against subsidies. We've got a case going up to the Arizona Supreme Court next month on an issue where City of Scottsdale is subsidizing one of its favorite parties. We're always working on people's right to earn a living, right? So everybody has an inherent right to work in the job of their choice, free from government interference. Courts have sort of relegated that right to second-class status. So we're frequently in courts arguing Talk over Talk a that. little bit about that, about the hairdressers and so forth, occupational licensing. Talk a little bit what Goldwater has helped do. Officer uh, Michelle Ugenti sponsored the bill. Governor Ducey signed it. You folks were intellectual power behind that to a degree. Um, explain what, what difference that made for people. Sure. Yeah, so you think about this. Um, about 50 years ago, only 5% of jobs required an occupational license, a government permission slip to work in the job. And it would be like lawyers, doctors, things you'd, you'd think about. 
Today, depending on the state, it's about 25% to a third of all jobs require an occupational license. And some of the stuff is bizarre. Is that because of certain people in their industries have gotten together, created a cabal, and said you need to be licensed? Precisely. It's rent-seeking. You know, it's rent-seeking. It's a lot easier to go to the government and ask them to prevent competition than it is to actually compete and beat your competitors. Yeah, I don't think people realize that's where a lot of it comes from. Right. I saw it a lot. My dad um, owned a dental lab, and they're always trying to get people to have to be licensed to do it, right? Now, it's medical. I get it. It's a little bit different than nails or hair or you know, things of that nature. But it does seem like it comes from people who've done well yep. and have time to devote to, let's create a trade organization. Yep. And then our next step is, let's get these suckers all licensed here. 100%. Yeah, you'll like this story. In, <laughs> in Florida, they decided to license florists. So if you wanted to sell flowers, <laughs> you had to take a test. And then the second part of the test is you had to make a floral display and show it to a panel of licensed florists. And only if they deemed it sufficiently beautiful could you have the privilege of selling flowers in the great state of Florida? How long ago was that? Uh, they, they still have the licensing requirements. <laughs> Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Is Goldwater doing anything in Florida to knock down that nonsense? Because it is the free state of Florida, so I've been told. So There was a case, uh, in fairness, there was a case, IJ, I think, brought it a few years back that, that attempted to challenge it, and I think they had some some victory in there, but the, the licensing regime still in place. Well, that sounds like something DeSantis would probably should... Sounds like something he'll do if he gets excited about it. Yeah. You had a question? You're, you're looking no, at I, was just, I was just thinking about why licenses are necessary in the first place. Because if, if I'm going to like my hairdresser and she doesn't have a license, but she cuts my hair well, then I'm going to keep going to her. If she doesn't cut it well, then... You go elsewhere. That's a yeah, free, you go that's elsewhere. That's a free market. So, yeah. I mean, I get it for like doctors. Yeah, yeah. I get it for attorneys. I get it for but, medical stuff. But, and but nails the, I do because there's... But for the basic things now. So I'm sure now for medical boards, you have to pass some other sort of DEI training as well as actual medical things that make people get better. Right. Yeah, they're building all that stuff into a lot of licensing requirements. So we got we got a couple minutes that are left. How do people stop this? What do they need to do to, to prevent this DEI, this progressive, we're going to control your thought patrol progress? First, notice it. I mean, people got to got to understand this is happening. Um, you know, throughout government, throughout universities, throughout K twelve. So, you know, figure out what's going on in your school district. Figure out what's going on in your state universities. Uh, identify the problem uh, first, uh, and then you know, be willing to stand up. And sometimes that takes takes courage. You know, people don't want to get quote unquote canceled. Uh, but you know, if there's a professor that's like, hey. This training's going on. I shouldn't have to do it. I shouldn't have to take this test where they're telling me what the right answer is. You know, uh, it requires people willing to say, uh, this is wrong and, uh, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. So it's a really good point. I think people, I think, it's a problem is it, it takes people like you, because most people don't have the time to spend on these issues. Right. I mean, they've got, a, you know, a lot of people working two jobs now. Um, trying to get extra income, they got their kids, they got soccer practice, all the things you do, except during the day you get to be sort of this watchman at the tower doing this. One final thing, you've recently had a new baby. Yep. And you had a son before. What? Ha- ha- how has fatherhood made you a better attorney? Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I guess maybe fatherhood um, at bottom makes you more empathetic. And I think a lot of attorneys um, lack in empathy. Um, you know, of course, we're opposing counsel, but uh, maybe even sometimes for your own clients. And I think, um, you know, there's nothing like um, ha- having responsibility over human life, uh, uh, developing uh, a person's character um, and, uh, you know, being able to uh, achieve those really important things that make you uh, more empathetic and focus on the things that truly matter in life. 15, 20 seconds left. What's the hardest part about being a father for you? Um, you know, making sure they're protected while also giving them the freedom to grow. That's hard. You can scrape your knee. I just don't want you to break the leg. Exactly. You got one of the two, right? That's right. Folks, this is thank John Riches for joining us from Goldwater Institute. Um, this is Breaking Battlegrounds. You can find us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. Pay attention for our podcast coming up. We're in interviewing former Jamaican ambassador Don Tapia. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. Have a fantastic weekend. Share the podcast. We love you guys. Take care. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web. 
with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, with Kylie Kipper. Sam is out with the sniffles today. We are honored for this portion of the show to have my friend and community leader, Ambassador Don Tapia. He's former ambassador of Jamaica, and he's been a community leader and led a business here in Arizona for many years. He's also served on various charitable boards, and whatever you think in Arizona that's happened in the last 30 years, 40 years, John's been doing it. Don's been doing it. Sorry, John. <laughs> Don's been we doing it. We just moved from John to Don. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Ambassador Tapia, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Well, we're so glad to have you on. So what was the process like becoming an ambassador? Well, the first thing is that you've got to be nominated, of course, by the president of the United right. States. Uh, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, it's great an honor to uh, have the president nominate you. And then after the nomination, the, uh, the process is you've got to go through the confirmation. And then that's a confirmation of the U.S. Senate. And you have to go and visit Washington, and you must make your rounds to the senators and so forth to let them ask you questions and so forth. And one of the things that always uh, uh, set me back is that they – what they call a mortar, a mortar, a mortar board. Uh, and what that is is that you go before the, uh, the opposition, which would be the Democrats since I was right. a Republican, uh, to go before uh, this board. And uh, they take you down the road. Believe me, they take you down the road with the questions and so forth. And I always remember one. There's, uh, I sat across from uh, Menendez's uh, attorney, <laughs> you know, his office, and he said, I've been a liberal Democrat all my life, and I'm going to die a liberal Democrat. And, of course, there's five other people in the room, and so you sit there and you listen to the questions and so forth. So when it came around to my time to, uh, to respond, I said, well, I'm a Republican, but if, in fact, I'm confirmed as a U.S. ambassador, I will represent you as a liberal Democrat because I represent the American people on which side of the aisle you're on. It makes no difference. And after, the, after we got through with that, as we were walking out, he says, that's the best answer anybody has ever given me in 20 years that I've been on the murder board. Oh, that's amazing. How many senators did you have to visit with? I visited with probably uh, about 15 to 20, basically the foreign minister, uh, the foreign relations committee. And that was over a couple days? They had uh, oh, no, that's over. You've got to go with their schedule, so that could be over a couple weeks that it could take place. Once you got the phone call till you were confirmed, how long did that process take? Uh, just about 11 months. It's a long process. It's a long, long process, yes. So is what is that seat open and then the president nominates someone, or um, does every time a new president come in, a new nomination happens? Uh, you've got to keep in mind that uh, it was some trying times back there, so uh, Trump being the president <laughs> and you coming in, uh, normally you would be uh, you'd be confirmed through a, you know, through an, uh, uh, a committee, and then it goes to the floor, and the floor then would actually uh, call you up, and it would be unan- unanimous. Uh, but because of the situation in Washington at the time, they were taking individuals. Okay. So we had to wait and wait and wait uh, until you got called up. And out of all of them, uh, by acclamation, there was only two uh, ambassador nominees that went before the full, uh, the full uh, Senate. And that was myself and uh, uh, the one out of Georgia. There was only two of us that, was, uh, that actually had to go through the complete okay. uh, roll call vote. Really? Yes. Uh, we thought that was pretty good. I came across, uh, out of all of the 100 senators, uh, I got 68, or I think it was 68 uh, U.S. senators across the aisle, which meant that I had Democrats and Republicans across the aisle. You're a bipartisan choice. I'm not real sure about that because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, uh, but it was by, uh, I, that year was the highest that uh, anybody ever received going through confirmation to the Foreign Relations Committee. Or the Honorable Don Tapia. He's a former ambassador to Jamaica uh, during the Trump administration. What, being an ambassador, what did you think it was about going in? And when you left, how had your opinion changed on the role? Well, going into it, the first thing you've got to look at is, is what is an ambassador? You know, what, what does the duties of an ambassador? And I always relate it to being the C, CEO of a large company. And that's basically what you are. You're the ambassador. You're the, what they call the commander, uh, the chairman of, of the board. Uh, when you go there, you have an embassy. And you, I had uh, just under 500 people at the embassy uh, that reported to me in different agencies. I had 18 uh, law enforcement uh, 
uh, associate uh, companies, or you might say units, that, uh, that reported to me across the board from the CIA down to the FBI down to, you know, the DEA and so forth. So you go, all of those people are reporting to you to tell you what's taking place in the, not only in Jamaica but in the world. As an ambassador, let's say today is supposedly the day of rage. Hamas has asked people to go out, express their rage. What would you be doing right now as an ambassador in Jamaica with such a warning throughout the world today? What would you be doing? Well, let's take a step back and, and, and talk about uh, Martin Luther King Day. You know, okay. whenever when we had the uh, we had the Black Lives Matter yes. that, was, that was going on and throughout the Caribbean and throughout the world. Right. Uh, at the embassy, of course, you have uh, you have uh, people showing up, you know, to demonstrate. And one of the things that I did is uh, you have your detail. You're always uh, around with your, your detail, your security detail. Uh, one of the things that I did that surprised everybody in Jamaica, and in fact, in, even the Caribbean got a lot of a lot of press on it, is the fact is that I went out into the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstration. And when I walked out there, they were all aghast that the U.S. ambassador would actually walk out of the embassy and walk into a demonstration right? Uh, to meet with the people. Yeah, they would be. Yes. They, wouldn't, they, they don't see that. No. And I'm not real sure the way that uh, uh, with the organization that's out there now demonstrating that you would want to be in that, in that uh, a group of people. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a different type of – you're talking about terrorists versus a demonstration. Correct. So that's one of the things that you're seeing here in uh, in the U.S. That When you look at the demonstrations taking place in New York and in Los Angeles and so forth, uh, Hezbollah, and, uh, you're seeing things that uh, that truly we never have seen on, our, on the U.S. soil where you see terrorists actually – I shouldn't say they're all terrorists, but yet the uh, – uh, the matter that they're that they're demonstrating against or for is terrorism. It has been terrorism. So that's one of the things that you look at, and you're going to ask me about about what my thoughts are about uh, what's taking place in yeah. But in we, what, yeah, what would you do as ambassador to prepare your staff today and and obviously uh, protect them and so forth on this type of day? Well, they tell you to uh, to uh, stay in place, which means when they say that, it says stay where you are. Uh, don't go out in the street. Don't get involved. Stay where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what you, you basically train. And we actually have um, uh, things that within the embassy that you train all the people that when something like that happens to stay in place. So if they start uh, storming the embassy like they did uh, did a few years back, uh, that's different. You have uh, – there's no way that you can control that. There's no way that you – you have your – of course, you have your military there that uh, – uh, that guards the gate and so forth, but there's not enough of them that could take uh, that could stop a, a major demonstration coming over the wall of an embassy. In Jamaica, how many people worked at the embassy? I mean, you told us you had this big crew about 500 people. How many people were career people that worked at the embassy had been there for a decade plus? There's no such thing as a decade plus uh, plus in an embassy. Your all your all your uh, uh, organizations that are that are assigned to the embassy is a three year basically a three year run. Uh, you have your career people that come in and they, uh, they're there for three years. The worst part about that is that, that on their second year, they have to bid out to their next job. Oh, okay. They actually have to bid out. So you have them for one year when they know that, that, uh, that they're leaving uh, within, a, within that year uh, period of time uh, to go to their next assignment. So that's one of the things I, I, I hold the, the career people, the people in the State Department that are in the U.S. embassies because they're traveling around the world. If you really want to, if you really want to see the world, join the Foreign Service because that's where you will see the see the, around the world. And if you have children, they'll get a, an education around uh, you know different countries around the world and so forth. So, and did did you find that people would join? to see the world? So they would say, I'm going to go work at this embassy for three years, and then I know that I can be assigned to another one. Is that I kind of think, their goal? Or I don't think that would, uh, that's anybody's goal to, to know that, uh, you know, you, it sounds... You're going to keep switching? It's, it sounds, uh, you know, romantically, you know... That, sounds like uh, the Navy uh, recruitment. Yeah, right. So they would prefer just to stay in, like, well, there's one certain, assignment? Or? Well, I, I think that they would like to stay longer, but you've yeah. got, you got a three-year, because keep in mind, in two years, you're only there two years, and you're bidding out, you're bidding yeah. out for, your, uh, for the next three years, the next four years, so, and you're still maintaining your, your position there in, yeah. in the embassy. What do you feel the difference is between ambassadors like you who are appointed, men and women of great um, integrity, background, substance, versus these great career 
Foreign Service folks are appointed. What, what, what do you feel the difference is? Is it that folks like you who have been appointed and not been part of the Foreign Service just comes with fresh eyes? It, it, is that helpful as an ambassador to come in with fresh eyes and say, we can do this better? Well, let's take a look at a career, a career ambassador and a, an appointed or a political ambassador. A career ambassador, of course, is, uh, is an employee of the State Department. Keep that in mind. So for them to get things done, they have to actually more like uh, tag base constantly uh, with, the, uh, with the State Department to do anything. If, they wanted, if I wanted to talk to, if they wanted to talk to, let's say, uh, the DEA director, they actually would have to go back to the State Department to have somebody within the State Department make the appointment, tell them what they want to uh, discuss with and who they wanted to talk with. Well, as a, as a political appointment, you're, an, you're appointed by the President of the United States and you're representing him directly. So therefore, you pick up the phone and uh, I've talked to the Vice President, I've talked to the Secretary of Defense and so forth, where you pick up the phone and just call the Secretary or you have your Secretary set up an appointment uh, and, you, and you can get more things done as a political appointment than you can as a career. That makes sense. Um, in your weekly schedule as ambassador, how much time are you actually at the residence versus being out and about in the country? I started at 7.30 in the morning, got home normally uh, about 4 to 6 o'clock in the evening. And so you're out every day? Yes, yes. What is something about Jamaica that the American public doesn't know about it besides, you know, it's a great place to go for a vacation? What, 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 tell us about the people, and I'm sure you feel in love with these people. You feel like it's probably a second home now. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Jamaica, you, you get, there's a couple things. There's a security thing that, uh, that you've got to look at. Uh, one of the things is Jamaica uh, sits in a location, of course, in the Caribbean, as we know, just south of uh, just south of Cuba. There's only two ways into the Gulf of Mexico, and that's some, one of the things that a lot of American people don't realize: that uh, you either go north to come into the Gulf of Mexico, and that takes you that takes you by the DR and into uh, by Cuba into the Gulf of Mexico. If you're coming out of the Panama Canal, which most of the big ships are coming out of the Panama Canal, going into uh, uh, going into the Gulf of Mexico to New Orleans to drop, you know, to drop the goods off that they picked up uh, in Europe, is the fact is that uh, you're going by Venezuela, you're going by Colombia, into the Gulf, uh, into the Gulf of Mexico. So what we have seen, and one of the things that you've got to look at is the CCP, which is the Communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, which becomes a factor around the world, and that's one of the greatest uh, threats that we have. It's not uh, Russia's a threat, of course, that they bring Russia in, but we found out that Russia. Uh, in the Ukraine, did not did not have the where to to really fight a world war. Right. That's uh, that's some of the things that you you look at uh, as an ex ambassador because you were involved uh, looking at what's taking place around the world. Uh, these are some of the things that uh, that uh, I think the American people in the Caribbean uh, is see. The Caribbean actually is our first line of defense when you look at it. The first line of defense, and during the Cold War. Uh, we put a lot of money and a lot of effort into the Caribbean. Once the Cold War was over after, after Reagan, we more like took, him, took advantage of them. We, d- we didn't pay attention to them. We paid more attention to, to Europe and South Africa and so forth than we did to our own home base, you might say, to the beaches that, uh, that really protect us in the long run. What should we do? What should be the policy going forward in the Caribbean from the United States government? Well, I think there's a certain areas that uh, that need to be um, that need to be beefed up. You know, whenever you get down to El Salvador, down in the, in that area and so forth, that the people that are coming from El Salvador, El Salvador, what you found out that just crossed over the border uh, just about two weeks ago, about fifty thousand Venezuelans uh, that are coming into the U.S. So when you turn around and you start taking a look at who is coming across our border today, it's very scary because there's bus busloads of uh, Chinese. How did the Chinese get to get to Mexico? Yeah, they did didn't they, walk. They didn't walk. So no. you so when you start t- taking a look at the people that are crossing the border, uh, we have no way to vent those people. No way to vent uh, thousands of people crossing the border on foot. So we have, a, we have a major security line, and I always say that a country is not a country without a border. We are not a country today. We have no border to the south. No, we do not. We do not. What? Right now, there's a, there's a number of countries that do not have a United States ambassador for various reasons, and I'll get into all those. But what does it mean when a country does not have a United States ambassador in it? What, who, who's running that, that, 
the charge deferrer is uh, the second. Normally, when the ambassador there, you have a, what they call a, a DCM, which is actually the deputy uh, uh, commander or your deputy uh, chief of staff is what they call them. Uh, once, that, uh, once the ambassador leaves, his title changes to cha- uh, charge deferrer, which means that he is in charge of the – takes the place of the ambassador. He doesn't have all the authority that the, the ambassador would have, but he has the authority to run the embassy and to take care of the day-to-day business. But to the president of a country or so forth, it's not the same as having the actual ambassador there. They know there's somebody – they know there's a manager at the, place, at the business – they know there's somebody there, maybe an assistant manager, but the person who really can give yes or no's is not there. And that, has, ex- and that has to play some role. That, that's exactly right, is that uh, without the ambassador, the ambassador – in many countries, believe it or not, the ambassador has the same voice as the prime minister or the president of that, company, uh, that country because the fact is he is a representative, the direct representative of the United States. So his words and what he says uh, is taken very seriously. And a lot of times, uh, you can get yourself in trouble. So you got to watch. <laughs> you got to watch what you're saying too. How but, many How many countries had ambassadors in Jamaica when you were there? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure, but we. Um, I know that uh, I could be out. I probably 17, 17 or eighteen. Did you Did you become close to to any particular ambassador from another country? Uh, well, the Chinese ambassador uh, kept trying. <laughs> the Chinese ambassador kept trying to meet me. And of course, my my detail, uh, your detail comes up and whispers in your ear as you see that the uh, that the Chinese ambassador would like to uh, to meet with you and shake your hand. And I, and my comment was, uh, uh, I don't believe that I need to shake his hand. You know, so, so. But uh, uh, the the different uh, the different uh, embassies had would have uh, certain kind of affairs and so forth that you were invited to. And a lot of times, you sent your deputy instead of uh, instead of you going. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Ambassador, we sure appreciate you coming on the show today. You've been fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I wonder how I looked before. You look fantastic, <laughs> and I appreciate your service. Would you do it again? If they called you tomorrow, would you do it again? You know, that's a, that's a question that I get asked a lot, and it'd, it'd have to be depending on the, on the country and so forth in, in which you're going to. Uh, the reason at my age is uh, I had a choice of a couple countries, but I went to, uh, picked, uh, when they gave me Jamaica, I thought, you know, at my age, I'm not that far away from the U.S. If something happened, uh, I could be flown back to the U.S. So you take a look at things. Uh, uh, I, always, I've, I always like to uh, say that I'd like to be the ambassador to, uh, to Iceland, but, that's, uh, but that uh, is covered by uh, a different, there's three countries that are in there, Iceland, New, uh, Newfoundland, and uh, I forget what the other, it's either Finland or one of them that actually has the responsibility, oh, I'm Norway. Norway actually has a responsibility for uh, for those three areas. Well, fascinating. Well, Ambassador Don Tapia, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Well, thank you for the invite, and I'm anytime. Was, anytime. was happy to come back uh, and, and give you. You know, I had uh, I get a lot of calls from still from around the world of people that I know, ambassadors and so forth. And we we talk about uh, the systems, uh, the things that are taking place, and like in Israel, we're talking. We've been a, a lot of chatter on that one. I bet. What are they saying about it? Well. It, you've had so many, uh, you know, upstarts with uh, Jamaica in the uh, in the Palest- I'm sorry, the um, Israel and the uh, Palestinians. Uh, you know, you got to come to some some conclusion and let it and run its course. Uh, that's a hell heck of a thing to say because that means that there's going to be a lot of a lot of deaths and so forth. A lot, a lot of innocent life. A lot of innocent life. A lot of innocent people that are going to uh, that's going to suffer. But at the same time, are we going to continue? Are you going to let Israel and, and uh, the Palestinians fight this battle every ten or fifteen years and so forth? And this one seems, from what I, from what I've been reading, what I've been told by some people that are actually in Israel, that this has been planned out for uh, for quite a long time. Sounds like a year or two. What I've been reading this morning, it's been coming out. It's, um, it, you know, it is. We had the Wall Street Journal reporter on last week who covers Eastern Europe, so he's been covering the Ukraine war, mm-hmm. and we asked the question. How does this come to a resolution? And his comment was, someone has to win. That's and I feel, sadly, you brought up, I appreciate you bringing up the stark reality and not talking a word salad here. Somebody has to win for this to sort of end. And um, I, I was sort of stunned he said it was, you know, a very unreporter-like statement, but he's been there for 12 years, speaks Russian, just says, someone has to win. It, you know, you could do a peace agreement, but it's basically a recess. 
they'll be back at it in a year or two again. That's exactly. And that's what we're seeing in the Middle East. And I, our prayers are there. We, um, sadly, a lot of innocent people are going to lose their lives on this. That's a very dangerous spot in the world because if that ex- if that place explodes, oh. uh, keep in mind you you got Egypt, you got Iran, you got Syria, you got Jordan. Uh, well, so yeah. you're, you're talking you're talking about not just one country that can that the explosion can take place, and if it does, uh, World War World War Two look like it uh, it was a, a training. What we can pray for some wiser heads prevail and everything right now is what we definitely need in the world. Our, our I prayer, know our, our uh, prayers. I'll tell you, you, you have to pray pray for the people that are, are suffering, the people yeah. that are going to suffer. Uh, you know, and our and, our, and of course our people. That we have to pray for them and hope that uh, we can work our way through this. But we haven't been able to. So, I somebody would call me a, haw, a hawk because the fact is, I say let's get let's get the job done one way or the other. Like you say, somebody has to win. Right. Let's get this. Let's find out who's going to win and and move on from there. We haven't done that. Uh, it's over the last 50 years that we have not done it since uh, uh, the Young Kipper War. Exactly. Well, Ambassador, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invite. <laughs> this is Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be right back. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for a political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, my co-host, Kylie Kipper, today. Kylie, thanks. You've done fantastic today. It's very exciting to be here. Very, very exciting (laughs) here. The big role. Kylie and I, before the show, were harmonizing, trying to figure out a closing song. We'll we'll get with you on that in a couple weeks as we practice a little bit more. So, Kylie, what do we have on Kylie's Corner today? Well, I felt since today's Friday the 13th, a little spooky season, October, I wanted to talk about the world's largest pumpkin. Okay. So, Travis Ginger, he um, has been growing enormous pumpkins for 30 years now. It's one of his hobbies. Um, he grew one so large that this year, it was the it weighed as much as a small car. Really? <laughs> yes. But in his previous year, so in 2020, he grew a pumpkin named Tiger King, mm-hmm. um, which weighed 2,350 pounds. Last year... Maverick, his pumpkin, was 2,560 pounds. Still hasn't, did not beat any world records. However, this year it was the 50th annual World Championship pumpkin layoff. And he has been growing Michael Jordan for six months now. And he is the world's largest pumpkin officially, weighing 2,749 pounds. And he transported this, he drove 35 hours to this competition with this pumpkin in the back of his truck. How, how does he grow them so big? I mean, what's different from, say, you and I go in our backyard and grow a pumpkin? What does he do that gets them so big? Is, um, is, there a certain, is there a certain seed he's using? What does he do? You know, he does not tell his secrets. However, he did say this pumpkin, he sat out there and he watered him every 30 minutes. I'm not really sure what his day job is. However, he sat out there well, he's probably a and farmer. watered him. <laughs> does he look older? Is he retired? Maybe. No, he's not retired. Every 30 minutes, huh? Yeah, every 30 minutes he was watering because he really wanted Michael Jordan to beat so, it this year. So what we're saying is he's the poster child for the termination of remote work yep. and get back in the office. Yep. Is that what we're telling Yes, it? yes, yes, because yes. every time they said, he says, I'm on a conference call or something, we know he's out watering <laughs> his pumpkin. <laughs> he's on mute. But he says that he names all of his pumpkins. Fantastic. Um, but he names all of his pumpkins off of... Um, what's happening in this year. So this year it's 2023, so named after Michael Jordan, but, you know, Tiger King in 2020. And so, so yeah, that's how he names them. Well, Kylie, I think this was a needed ending today to our show where there's a lot of chaos going on in the world. Yep. Folks, this is Breaking Battlegrounds. We hope you have a great weekend. You can, for, of course, find us on breakingbattlegrounds.vote. Um, we also ask you to go to anywhere you get your podcast or listen to a one of our 12 stations that has our radio show on every week. We hope you have a great weekend. Stay safe.